Well, uh, we are finishing our series on the cross of Christ. And so far we've learned about how we must approach the cross. We also learned about the heart of the cross, which um, is the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Then on Good Friday, we studied the cries from the cross that Jesus lifted up uh, to his father, the prayers that he offered uh, for those who had betrayed him and were crucifying him. And on Easter Sunday last week, uh, we learned about the glory of the cross, the glory of the cross, which is the resurrection. Uh, Today, we are finishing our series And the title of the sermon is The Cross-Centered Life, The Cross-Centered Life. And the main question I want to explore is, how can we now apply the truth and the power of the gospel in our lives? How can we be cross-centered? How can we truly live this kind of gospel-centered life? We we, we are so familiar with the rhetoric, right? Uh, And I think for many of us, that's our desire. We genuinely want to live lives that are centered on Jesus and the cross. And today, I want to help us move past the rhetoric into the real. I want to help us to to make uh, habits, healthy habits, uh, to experience heart and and life transformation around the cross. And so, um, yeah, that's my prayer. It's a big prayer. Uh, As I was preparing this, I felt like this was actually the hardest message uh, to prepare uh, and uh, in all of the previous messages, we've looked at Jesus and his teachings in the Gospels. Uh, but today, I want to go to the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul, because I believe that in Paul, uh, we have an example. We have a witness. We have someone who offers us uh, a life that is truly uh, wrapped around the cross, a life that is truly centered uh, on the gospel. And so I know in your bulletins it says, uh, Luke, that's actually incorrect. We're going to look at Acts 20, verses 17 to 24. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to, sorry, 27. I'll give you a second to turn there. And if you don't have your Bibles, uh, it'll go up on the screen. May God bless the reading of his holy and inspired word. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Amen. Amen. Well, in classic fashion, uh, I have three points today. And I'm not going to give all three in the beginning. I know the note takers really like that. We're just going to start with the first. And the first point is this. 
The cross-centered life is a captivated life. Okay? The cross-centered life is a captivated life. Now, church, when was the last time you were personally and truly captivated? When something caught a hold of you, when something gripped you and did not let you go. When you experienced something and it just immediately reoriented your behaviors, your passions, your priorities, your desires. Uh, you know, uh, in golf, golfers joke that it only takes one great shot, one pure strike to get you hooked. You see, you could be a beginner, you can go to the range, and you can just shank an entire bucket of balls. But if that last ball you have, you just hit it pure, and you see it flying through the sky, you're going to come back. You're going to come back. All the golfers can attest to that. I've never surfed before, but I heard that the first time you stand up and you ride a wave, it is majestic. It is majestic. Or perhaps it was just something as simple as a TV show. Right? You, you clicked on Netflix, something had a bunch of stars, or someone referred it to you, and you saw that first episode, and it was so captivating that you ended up binge-watching the entire night. I mean, you saw the sun rise, and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I do? But you couldn't stop yourself. You were gripped. You were captivated. Or on a more serious note, I've heard parents tell me that they were captivated by the birth of their first child even though they'd never laid eyes on that baby before, besides that ultrasound, even though they'd never heard that baby's voice or held her or him in his hands, that in an instant in the delivery room, the moment they saw their first child, their hearts were gripped. Their lives were forever changed. And here's the thing. They didn't just make a calculated decision that, okay, I am now a parent. They didn't just allow that parental instinct to kick in and say, now I'm going to care for this child and love this child and protect this child. No. They didn't just make a calculated decision. These parents were captivated. And they fell madly in love with that screaming, naked, gooey, beautiful newborn. Right? You see, here's the thing. God has wired our hearts in such a way that we can be gripped and we can be captivated and we delight in this. We actually need this. And I believe that if you kind of think about your life and you go back and you kind of do a timeline or a life map or whatever it might be, that you have experienced the most radical change in your life, not as a result of your own disciplines, not as a result of your own decisions, but as a result of experiencing something outside of you changing you. Someone outside of you influencing you and shaping you and transforming you. You see, we don't change the most when we try to change ourselves. We change the most when we become, when we experience change. Right? Church, this is what happened to the apostle Paul. If you didn't know, his name was not always Paul. In fact, before he was an apostle, he was a Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee whose name was Saul. And this guy's singular mission, if you read Acts, right, Acts chapter 8 and 9, his singular mission was to ravage the church and destroy Christianity. He had personally had Christians dragged from their homes and sentenced to death. There was a deacon by the name of Stephen. He had him stoned for his faith in Jesus Christ. But one day as Saul was traveling to the city called Damascus, he was planning 
to find more Christians, to persecute more Christians. As he was traveling to the city, Saul met the risen Lord. And Jesus struck him and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul was blinded at that time. And it wasn't until Saul truly understood the gospel that his eyes were opened and he was baptized and he became a follower of Jesus. You see, Saul met Christ and his life was forever transformed. He was gripped by the gospel. He was radically transformed from a persecutor to a believer, from a Pharisee to an apostle. Saul changed his name to Paul because, and he became a missionary for the early church. He traveled throughout the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel in the most dangerous places, planting churches everywhere he went. And so here in Acts 20, we get, we get an insight how to, in, uh, into how Paul lived his life. We get to see his vision. We get to see his passion of what a cross-centered life looks like. You see, Paul was traveling from Asia to Jerusalem. And sorry, crowd, like Asia was not like China and Korea. He wasn't there. Uh, Asia was Asia Minor. So he was going from Greece in the northern part of the Mediterranean down to Jerusalem. And he stopped by a city by the name of Miletus. And there he called the leaders of a church he planted in the city called Ephesus, right? That's where we get the book Ephesians, right? The letter of Ephesians. And so he called these elders, these leaders to come to him. And he'd spent three years ministering to them. He loved that church and he loved those people. And the reason why Paul called them is because God told Paul that he wouldn't see them again, that he was gonna go to Jerusalem. Bad things were gonna happen to him and he would never see these beloved Ephesian elders again. So he called them, and these are his final words as a brother and as an apostle. And I just want to highlight verses 22 to 24 again. This is what Paul is telling his brothers. The last time he's spending time with them, the last words he has for them, this is what he says. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, Paul says that he was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. What does this mean? Well, that word constrained, it means to be bound. He was compelled. He felt almost forced to go to Jerusalem. He couldn't help himself. He had to go. But here's the thing. Paul knew he was going into the eye of the storm. He knew that he had affliction awaiting him, that he had persecution. He had trouble awaiting him. How many of us, if God tells us, if you go to that city, you're going to get hurt. If you go to that city, you're going to be persecuted. You know what I would do? I'm gonna U-turn, right? I'm going to go 180 degrees and go in the opposite direction. I'm going to do a course redirect and not go to Jerusalem. But Paul was constrained. Why? We have to ask why. Why would Paul do such a thing? Why would Paul live such a life constrained by the will of God? What was going on in Paul here? Was he being forced against his will? And here's the answer, no. 
Paul was not being forced against his will. Rather, his will was captivated by the gospel. Paul had seen the risen Lord. He's, ex- he's experienced the supremacy of Christ. Jesus had completely reoriented his life's purpose in such a way that Paul no longer counted his life precious to himself. In fact, he says that, that it's worth nothing to him, right? It's worth nothing to him. And here's the thing. He's not saying this in a self-loathing manner. You know, sometimes you're just like having a bad day, right? Maybe you got in a car accident or your girlfriend broke up with you or uh, whatever it might be. And you're just like, oh, what a terrible day. What a terrible day. My life is worth nothing to me, right? That was not Paul's attitude. It wasn't because he was having a bad day. It wasn't because he hated himself or he was depressed. No. Why would he say, I account my life worth nothing to me? Because of the supremacy of the gospel. Jesus had given him a greater vision, a greater purpose, a greater passion than just living for himself, living for his own comforts, living for his own preferences. The cross had become so much greater. And now the only thing that mattered to him wasn't living long and retiring and, 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 and settling down in this beautiful island in the Mediterranean. Well, that would be fantastic, right? No, the only thing that mattered to him was to finish his course and complete the task that Jesus had given him, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Do you guys see how single-minded Paul is? The only thing that matters to me is to complete the mission the task, the calling that Jesus has given me. And that's to testify to the gospel. Church, what is your passion? What is your purpose in life? That's a hard question to ask, right guys? If I came up to you and said, hey, let's meet up for coffee, and that was the first question that came out of my mouth, you'd probably say, I'm not gonna have coffee with Pastor Michael anymore. He He just goes a little too hard, right? Just a little too serious. But is your passion something that Jesus has given you? Or is your passion something that you have crafted and designed for yourself? Is your passion, is your purpose something that has come down from heaven, from the will and the mouth of God to say, this is what you are to do with your life? Or is your passion and purpose something that others have imposed upon you? Are you trying to become the person your wife wants you to be? Are you trying to become the person that your parents have always longed for you to become? And are you just living trying to make them happy? Right? It's fulfilling their purpose, now your purpose. Right? Church, do you have a passion that is so great it makes your earthly allegiances pale in comparison? Not your earthly, he's not saying that your earthly allegiances don't matter anymore. He's saying that, that there's something so great so supreme, so majestic that it makes these lesser things pale in comparison. Here's another way to think about this. What is it that truly fulfills you? Maybe this is a little easier, okay? Right? What fulfills you? What makes you satisfied? What makes you feel like your life is on track, college students? Okay, if I were to ask you, what things need to happen in your life in this semester to make you finish the year and say, I feel like I'm on track. Like things are going well for me in life, right? I'm ready for the next year. I'm ready for this next step in life. What are the things, church, that when you accomplish 
you feel peace, you feel success, you feel strong, you feel satisfied? Or what are the things when you are lacking them cause you grief and anxiety, stress and sleepless nights? Because here's the thing. If you need something more than God to fulfill you, if you need something more than Christ in the gospel to satisfy you, you identify that. And there is your God. There is your idol. There is your treasure. If you find yourself saying, and I think a lot of Christians do, I'm grateful for the cross. I'm grateful for the gospel, but I need more. Okay, do you say that? I'm, I'm grateful for God. I know he's good. I'm so happy and glad that Jesus died for me, but I really need this. What is that thing? And whatever that is, that's your savior. That's what you're looking to, to save you, to fulfill you, to satisfy you, to give you purpose. But Paul shows us a picture of a Christ-centered life and says, you know what? Those other things, those are rubbish to me. My own life, it means so much less to me than the gospel of Jesus. And to church, the first time I really read this in college, it captivated me. Acts 20, 24 became my life verse and in no way have I mastered it. In no way can I tell you imitate me as I imitate Paul, as Paul imitates Christ. I can't even go there. But I always return to this verse to recalibrate me and give me purpose. The first time I read it, I was in the basement of a library called Levy Library, right? USC Trojans. We've spent a lot of time there, right? They call it the Asian dormitory, right? <laughs> I was there and I was in a room and instead of doing homework for economics or business or whatever it might be, I was, I was reading the Bible and I was reading through Acts and this verse captivated me. This vision of what my life could be, how my life could, could be oriented it gripped me. I wrote that thing on, we had these whiteboards. I wrote it up on the board, right? And I just read it and I meditated upon it. I prayed over it and I said, Lord, would you, would you make this true of me? Would you make this my passion? Church, that's what we need, right? We need to be captivated by the cross. We need to be captivated by the supremacy of Christ, now let's transition into the second point. The cross-centered life is not just a life for Christ, but it's a life with Christ. So I'm gonna take it one step further, okay? It can't just be that Jesus is our purpose. It can't just be that Jesus is our passion. The cross-centered life is not just a life for Jesus. It's a life with Jesus. Guys, have you ever had uh, somebody do a lot of things for you, but then never spend that much time with you? Think about that. Have you ever had somebody do a lot of things for you but never spend that much time with you? Um, this happens every once in a while uh, when we go to somebody's house for dinner and they're playing host, right? They're playing host and they just wanna, they just wanna wine and dine you or hey, this is church, uh, just Coca-Cola you and, 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 and feed you, right? And they just wanna bless you and care for you. And they spend all their time setting up, all their time cooking, all their time serving and then cleaning up and, and they won't let you help. 
And so you're just sitting at the dining table or you're sitting in the living room and you're just kind of alone because they're just serving you and doing all of these things for you. And you spend like maybe the last 15 minutes talking and then you got to go home and you leave feeling weird, don't you? You leave feeling a little disconnected because you're like, I think I was trying to go there not just to get a free meal. I was trying to spend time with that person. I wanted to connect. I wanted to grow our relationship together. And all that person did was serve me. All that person did was try to do things for me. Now, what's the point of that illustration? Here's the thing. In the same way, we don't want our friends and family just to serve us and do things for us. Christ doesn't want your identity Christ doesn't want our identity to primarily be his servants, his workers. He wants us to have an intimate relationship with him, okay? So the gospel is not simply your purpose statement, right? What the gospel is designed to do is to bring you into a relationship with Christ, in Christ. So Paul, in his letter to Galatians, and so here's the thing. Here's a cool thing about today's sermon. Acts 20, 24 is my life's verse. Galatians 2, 20 it's Pastor DC and Pastor Tay's life verse, right? And this is what Paul writes in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you meditate upon that verse? We'll keep it up on the screen while I talk. Theologian Leon Morris, he writes that this is the most beautiful in personal verse in all of scripture. Why would he say that? Because Paul says, Christ loved me. And you can say that as well. You can say, Christ loved me. And he gave himself for me. And through it, Jesus is reminding us the extent of his love. And he's reminding us that his love was not just a vague offering. He didn't just kind of put it out there. He doesn't say, you know, here it is. It's an open-ended gesture. Whoever wants in, you can have it, right? It was not just general, church, friends. His death on the cross was aimed at you. It was purposed for you. And we need to be able to hear that. We need to be able to receive that. We need to be able to embrace and enjoy that. Paul understood this. Paul understood this. He understood that his primary identity was not as a servant, but it was as a son. Now, this is the point that I would like to make. Too often, Christians, we get so caught up in trying to live for Christ. We get so caught up in trying to serve Christ. We try to sacrifice for Christ that we forget that the entire purpose of the gospel is to unite us to Christ and make us his own. Okay, that's the purpose of the gospel. Okay? It's not to like, raise up a crazy workforce for Jesus in heaven. That's not the point. Right? The purpose of the gospel is to save you and make you his own. Right? Paul declares that we have been crucified with Christ, not for Christ. And that one preposition is so important. Right? That it's a little grammatical point, but it's so, so important. It's not, it's, it's not for Christ. It's with Christ. And so we have to remember that we don't take up our cross to die to ourselves merely to be spiritual martyrs for Jesus. Guys, 
We are not trying to do this to pay Jesus back because you will never be able to do that. And he's not expecting you to, okay? That's why we sing the song, Jesus paid it all. We're not trying to pay Jesus back with our sacrifice, with our service, with our disciplines, with our obedience. We're not trying to prove our faith. No, we die to ourselves in order, what does Paul say? To be united with him. We want to be crucified with him, connected to him in his death and in his resurrection. Church, I am continually reflecting upon J.I. Packer's uh, three-word definition of the gospel. You've probably heard me say it before, especially if we've ever done a Bible study. There's a three-word definition of the gospel that I love. Uh, It is this, adoption through propitiation, okay? Adoption through propitiation. That's the gospel message. And when you unpack that, all that simply means is that Jesus died on the cross in your place, bearing the wrath of God, And because of that, you and I become sons and daughters of God. And in that definition, adoption through propitiation, you have the goal. What's the goal? God wants you and I to be his sons and his daughters, not just servants and slaves, but sons and daughters. How does he do that? Through Jesus Christ, our wrath-bearing substitute. Church, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus died to make you his own. That's the cross-centered life, guys. We have to be connected and united with Christ. That has to be our our ambition. That has to be our purpose. That has to be our joy, not just to do things for Jesus, not just to serve Jesus, but to be connected and united to Jesus. Here's the third point. The cross-centered life is filled with cross-centered days, okay? Uh, And this is the most practical part of the entire sermon. I am indebted to a pastor named C.J. Mahaney, for this simple and yet beautiful quote, the cross-centered life is filled with cross-centered days. In his book, it's actually titled The Cross-Centered Life, he commits an entire chapter to the cross-centered day. And I just wanna share some of his insights with you. This final point, I really hope that it kind of brings uh, some of our theory and our thinking and the exhortations down to kind of like surface level, ground level, sea level, Uh, for us to really live out. This should help us with the first two points. So the first point was, how can we be captivated by the cross, right? And the second point was, how can we live a life united with Christ? Here are the practical steps to do that. The first answer is this, to fill our hearts and our minds with the gospel through the word of God, okay? To fill our hearts and our minds with the gospel through the word of God. Church, you cannot love what you don't know. You cannot be captivated by something you never hear, by something you never read. If you never spend time reading your Bibles, you will be hard-pressed to ever experience a soul-stirring, life-transforming moment with God. You've got to get in this book. You've got to read the Word so that the Holy Spirit can speak to you through these words of life that God offers us if it stays closed if it just gathers dust on your bookshelf, you will never experience the soul-stirring, captivating power of God through his word. We've all heard the dichotomy 
between quality time and quantity time, right? Quantity time is just spending a lot of time with people. Quality time is like going deep, right? Really connecting, really enjoying that. And people are like, oh, I want one, but not the other. But here's the thing, guys. Here's the reality. Quality time is birth from quantity time, okay? Quality time is birth, or quality time is birth from quantity time. So um, spouses, if you're ever like, man, I really want to have this like in-depth, soul, heart-to-heart, spiritual conversation with my wife, but every time I try, just she shuts me down, or he's too busy, or whatever it might be, okay? You know what helps? Trying to build more quantity time, talking about things other than your children, or the errands that you have to run, or uh, you know, your mundane day at work, right? but to actually over and daily, over and over again, just asking questions and trying to add quantity to a serious spiritual discussion then every once in a while, right? Not all the time, but every once in a while, you'll connect. You will captivate one another. You will connect with one another. But that's only gonna happen if you try 10 times and maybe you'll hit it once, right? Um, Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott. Uh, He is a famous Christian missionary who died as a martyr in Peru. You know what his Bible reading regimen was? In the morning, he would read from the Old Testament. At noon, he would read from the Psalms. And in the evening, he would read from the New Testament. That is a day shaped around the word of God, is it not? That is a life that is continually reading, listening, meditating upon God and his word. And he lived a life that was captivated by the gospel. In addition to scripture, I want to recommend you to renew your minds with books on the cross, right? I want to commend two to you today. I even brought them. I don't use props. I like never do, but here they are, book props, right? Um, This is C.J. Mahaney. Living the Cross-Centered Life, okay? This is intro, easy reading, but I love it, right? Fantastic book. I want to commend this to you, okay? It's on Amazon, maybe like $12.99, right? Um, And then if you are kind of like a heavy hitter and you really want to get into it, this is John Stott's The Cross of Christ. Powerful book. If you want to, um, yeah, if you want to, you probably should grab a buddy and do accountability, and, and read together, uh, just like a big workout or something like that. But these are two great books. And I just want to say, this is, these are ways that we can be reflecting upon the cross, that we can be opening and set, setting our minds to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that he can speak to us. He can transform us. He can captivate us. The second way we can fill our days with the cross is in our prayers. Okay, It's in our prayers. Church. Pray the gospel. Do not allow your prayers to sound like a laundry list of to-dos, right? Do not allow your prayer life to be reduced to, God, I need this, and then this person I care about is lifting up this request, and uh, yeah, this is kind of tough. Could you help me out with this? Yes, God cares about all of our small, big, insignificant, or significant issues, but you know what what we need to do? More than those things, we need to pray the gospel. And church, we teach you how to do that every Sunday at worship. We are trying to teach you how to pray the gospel by confessing your sins and then reflecting upon the promises of Christ to forgive us, to reconcile us, to liberate us, to save us, 
and then rejoicing in that. Every Sunday, we're trying to teach us how to pray the gospel, respond to the gospel, sing the gospel, and I want to encourage you to allow that pattern to shape your prayer life. Don't allow your prayers to be just a list of spiritual errands. Your greatest call to prayer is not to get into that graduate program, not to pray that your kids will get over the flu, even though we all want them to be healthy and whole. It's to go before God, to confess your sins and cling to the promises of the gospel. Church, here's the thing. We never move past the gospel. You never move past the gospel. You know what spiritual growth is? You know what Christian growth is? It's going deeper into the gospel. If you've ever done our study, our one-on-one mentoring ministry series, uh, we we do this book called The Gospel-Centered Life, right? The Gospel-Centered Life. And the first thing that you will learn, that Christian growth and discipleship is about seeing God increase in his holiness, in his majesty, in his supremacy, and then our sin go darker and deeper and more heinous and corrupt. And that gap between us gets wider and wider the more we learn about God and the more we realize about ourselves. And the only thing that fills that gap is the cross. And it gets bigger and bigger as you understand sin more and more, as you understand God and his glory more and more. The third way to fill out our days, and this is the final one, is to have the person and work of Jesus ever before us. In all of our situations, in all of our thinking, in all of our um, decision-making, to really consider Christ. And now here's the thing, right? This is not a plug for WWJD. We all remember that fad, right? That campaign. I didn't have it, right? I had it on my wrist. I had it on a keychain. I thought it was really cool. WWJD. And that's an acronym for what would Jesus do? And we always thought, man, that's such a great pattern for discipleship. I want to follow Jesus, imitate Jesus, be like Jesus, So I should always think WWJD, right? We stole that from Nike, right? I want to be like Mike. I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. Anyways, um, (laughs) it was well-intended. It was well-intended. But you know what the the more cross-centered, gospel-centered approach is? Not what would Jesus do, but it is what did Jesus do? Okay, what did Jesus do? And when we remember the finished work of Christ for us, then you can actually start practicing a gospel ethic in your life. Think about this. Why can you love your enemy? How can you forgive your enemy? Is it just WWJD and be like Jesus? No. We can forgive, we can love because Christ first loved us because Jesus has already forgiven us and we've experienced that kind of grace. We've experienced that kind of love and he has filled our hearts, he's filled our cups so that even if somebody would take things from us, even though somebody might violate us and harm us, our treasure in Christ is untouched. It is incorruptible. So because of what Jesus has done, we are kept we are safe, and so you can forgive others. And I saw this week um, an interview with this Egyptian woman. We saw last week that uh, on Good Friday, Egyptian churches were bombed. In the middle of worship, they, they were, they, they, people hid bombs under the seats in the church, and they went off during Good Friday worship. And these Christians responded with forgiveness. 
They responded with grace. They responded with the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because they were trying to be like Jesus, but because they had been saved and redeemed and loved by Jesus. What did Jesus do? That has to live out or shape our gospel ethic. How can we practice stewardship and generosity? Is it, oh, Jesus gave everything, so we should give everything? Guys, that's a hard line to tote, isn't it? But if you understand that Jesus not has given you everything, he's given us everything. He's given us the kingdom of God. And he's promised to us an inheritance that is incorruptible. We are already rich in Christ. We have all that we could ever need. And God, our father, has promised to be our provider. So you can give your material possessions away. You can give your time, your treasures, your talents away. You can practice stewardship and generosity, not out of scarcity, but out of the abundance that Christ in the gospel provides for you. That's the Christian ethic. That's the cross-shaped life. Would you consider these points? My prayer is that as we look to Jesus Christ, he would captivate you and shape your lives around the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love demonstrated towards us through Jesus Christ who loved us to the point of death, who gave himself for us. Father, I pray that right now, if there's anyone here who doesn't know where they stand with you, who doesn't know if they have a life-saving life-giving relationship with you. God, I pray that you, would, that you would speak to them personally in their hearts, in their minds. Would you make yourself known to them? Would you captivate them with your message of grace, life, and hope? Father, for all of us, would you help us to see the vanity of our earthly ambitions? Would you help us to See how, how, how temporal, how meaningless some of our earthly purposes are. And God, I pray that, that your gospel, that your good news, that making you known, Lord, that that would be our joy, that that would become our treasure, that that would become our passion.